All right, we are going to be in the book of Philemon today, which is one page in your Bible. It's after Titus and before Hebrews. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 712. If you're using the right Bible like I have, it's 1271. <laughs> Most of you aren't using my Bible, so I don't know where it's going to be, page number, but it's going to be between Titus and Hebrews. So let's go ahead and bow our heads as we get ready to open the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you in song so far. And we ask you to be here to guide and lead as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in the book of Philemon. It's a whole 25 verses. It covers one page of most Bibles. <laughs> it's very, very hard to read. It'll take you take you days to get it all read, I'm sure, but you probably get it done in an hour, less than an hour, 20 minutes max. And we will probably spend two to three, maybe four sessions on it because <laughs> it is a very powerful book. It is one that many Christians have never read. Philemon. So we're looking at the book of Philemon. The author of this book is Paul. He wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. And he it was before his second imprisonment, because he was hoping that when he got freed on his first imprisonment that he'd be able to go someplace. He was not able to leave Rome after his first imprisonment was done. He was told to leave, not leave the town, and he stayed there and was then rearrested and never got out of that one before he was beheaded. Uh, we know that it was Paul because he says so. <laughs> In the book he says it was Paul, and it has all the earmarks of Paul's writing. It was a it's very personal letter. This is a letter to a particular individual with a request from Paul to forgive somebody. So it's a book all about forgiveness when, of somebody who did not deserve to be forgiven, okay, from the human point of view. And it's very, in one sense, it's very different from Paul's other letters because Paul's other letters are to churches trying to correct and help grow churches, or in the case of Timothy and Titus, teaching them how to be pastors, and they range all over the place. And this particular letter is very pointed. <laughs> all right. And in the early church, it was questionable whether they even wanted this book to be in the canyon, canon. But most of the early church fathers said it was because of the important lessons. Even though it has one very particular point, they looked at it and it says, it has a huge spiritual application, and so it made it into the canon of the Bible. It's written to a person named Philemon. Philemon had a church in his home located, located at Colossae. How do we know this? Is because Colossians 4.17 tells us that he had a house in his home in Colossae. <laughs> so we know that it's written to Philemon, who is in Colossae. He had slaves, obviously because this Onesimus was one of his runaway slaves that Paul is sending back to him. Now, I do want to make a comment on this, because a lot of people that aren't Christians will say, see, the Bible approves of slaves. Nowhere in the Bible does it approve of slaves, but it does tell people how to treat their slaves if they were going to have slaves. All right? So here we're seeing the Bible does not say go out and get slaves. <laughs> All right. Nowhere in it does it say to go out and get slaves. As a matter of fact, it does say to be very kind to your slaves, treat them as family. And if you go through the way the Bible says to treat them, it would be almost like an employee. All right. So we want to be able to understand this 
Because a lot of people go, well, see, it shouldn't be there. It's approving of slavery. No, it's just saying it's a fact. Now take care of him and be kind to him. All right. Uh, we look at this, and it says that uh, as we go through this, we're going to find out that Philemon was somebody who cared for people. He gave people generously, benevolently. He put people up in his home. He fed them. He allowed the church to meet in his home. Now, in the first century, churches met in homes. All right? And why? Because most of the bigger homes had great big common rooms that could fit 20, 30 people. They might even have a banqueting room if the person was wealthy enough that would be able to have hundreds of people in it. So it was not uncommon for the church to be in homes. As homes have gotten smaller and smaller over the years, we now end up having to have churches because no place can have hundreds of people. You know, does anybody in this room have a room for 100 people in their house? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we barely have enough room for all of us, and we're not a very big church. <laughs> so he had a house, he had a place where it was, and it was very, apparently very wealthy. The church father, the early church father said that he was a wealthy man, and he was apparently led to Christ by Paul. Now, Paul didn't go to Colossae, so we don't know where he met Paul. <laughs> Most people speculate that it was probably at Ephesus when Paul had gone to Ephesus that he met him in Ephesus and got saved. Because call, Paul calls him his son. <laughs> All right? And is going to call on him to honor his request because of his relationship with him. The other main character in this story is Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is a servant, or was a servant, <laughs> of Philemon, who for some reason ran away. And he ran from Colossae to Rome probably thinking he could get lost in the, in the large city of Rome. And there he met Paul. And he ends up getting saved under Paul's teaching and serves Paul. And then Paul's telling him, well, you are actually Philemon's servant. We need to send you back. Now, Rome had some really interesting policies. If a, Roman, if a slave went back, at the very least, they would be beaten to within an inch of their life, if not executed. To, to, to be an example to other slaves not to run away. All right, so Onesimus is not going to want to return back to Philemon because he's worried about the punishment that's going to follow. And this whole letter is about Paul saying to Onesimus, you need to go back and trying to get Philemon to forgive him. So this is where we are in this uh, reading of this. We want to look at this. We know that Onesimus is a very well-trained uh, servant. He is apparently doing the secretarial work because he is the one that writes this letter to Philemon. And he is also the one who writes the letter to the Colossians. <laughs> so he is a well-trained servant uh, and a knowledgeable servant. He knows how to write. He knows how to properly edit the documents. He's trained basically at least one area as a secretary. All right, he takes, the, he takes the dictation and he forms all the sentences and has Paul sign, <laughs> sign the letters and, and go from there. So he is, he is a well-trained servant and it's going, this book was written around 61, 62 AD. It, the outline of the book is a very simple outline. Verses one through seven is a long greeting, <laughs> long personal greeting from Paul. Eight through nine is the request. He has a request for Onesimus. Verses 10 through 11 is the testimony for Onesimus. 
verses 12 through 19 is the appeal to forgive. And then 20 through 25 is Paul's benediction. And Paul always has a benediction. I'm praying for you. So-and-so is praying for you. All these people say hi to you. It's either at the beginning or the end. And we see it pretty much at the end of this one. Lessons that we're going to learn from this whole book will be the idea and the importance of sympathy. Being sympathetic for the world. And this is something that we as Christians must get into our lives, to be sympathetic for the world. Do we really understand and truly believe that if the world does not get saved, they're going to hell? They're going to hell. You know, at the rate of approximately 72 people per second in America, people are going to hell or going into eternity. And when you calculate that for us in America, let's say, let's be very generous, let's say half of them are saved, that still means 36 people every second in America are going to hell. And I think 50% would be way too high. So we need to really get this idea of sympathy for the lost world because they are going into a Christless eternity and it's always uns uns uh, unsuspected. Even if you know you're dying, you don't know the exact minute you're going to die unless you commit suicide or have somebody help you die. You don't know the exact minute and second you're going to die. Even if you know you're sick and terminal, you don't know exactly when you're going to die. And everybody that we know who has passed away had plans. They had doctor's appointments. They were planning to go shopping. They were planning to do all kinds of things when, they ended, when their life ended. So we need to have that sympathy for the lost to draw them into Christ because they are in need. Then the other thing we're going to learn about is that we, the, we have a duty to forgive. Why do we have a duty to forgive? Because God forgives us. You know, if we're holding grudges against people, we are not following the word of God. We are not acting the way God has taught us to act. And we need to be able to understand that he forgives, we are to forgive. He loves, we are to, for, we are to love. Now, forgiving does not mean that we're going to just say, you're okay, keep doing what you're, what you're doing wrong. But we're not going to hold a grudge against them. We're still going to try to reach out to them and love them. Because it's real easy to get mad at somebody, you know, and you go, I forgive them, but you don't want to talk to them. You don't want to see them. You see them coming down the street. You turn the other way and go, go down another street or whatever. That's not forgiving. We have a duty to forgive. And we have a duty to obey God's laws and human laws. All right. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told don't obey man's laws, except where the apostle said we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's where God's laws came in direct conflict to man's laws. And as I've always pointed out, even when that happens, you're still subject to the punishment of man's laws, even when they're wrong. All right. The disciples did not go on and say, well, you're beating us because we preach Jesus and we're doing what God says. So you don't have the right to beat us. They go, okay, we're, we're going to follow God's rules. You have the right to beat us, but we're, not, we're still not going to obey your law to not talk about God. So if you choose to disobey man's laws to obey God, be ready for the punishment. Very simple. It does not free us of the punishment of their wrong law. It just means that we're obeying God. And he'll reward us in heaven, but there'll be consequences here. So we're to follow his laws. This is what he's telling Onesimus. It's time for you to go back to Philemon. You know, you ran away from him, you're his servant, you've got to go back. And so we learn about the obedience to man's laws. 
And then we read at the very end of this that God destroys classes and races. God does not see people the way we see them. He does not see different types of people because we are all people. Racism is a wrong attitude scripturally. Why is it wrong? Well, the number one reason is we all have a set of parents that are the same, Adam and Eve. All right? And we also have a second set of parents that is all in common for us, Noah and Mrs. Noah. We are all one people. No matter what color skin it is, no matter what nation we're from, no matter what uh, uh, anything about us, we are all the same as far as that goes. God also doesn't recognize rich and poor because he goes, I'm the one that blesses. So that gets rid of the idea of this whole problem of envy that we have for class. You know, well, I'm poor and I want to be rich, or I'm rich and I really should be poor because I, I'm being driven crazy by my money. You know, it's kind of an amazing thing. When you don't have money, you want the money. When you have the money, most of them go on, this is more pain in the neck than it's worth. But they don't want to lose the benefits that come with it, but they, they are always worrying about their money and do people like me because of my money? Are they, and they realize how bad the money was for them. You know, so we want to be able to look and say, Paul is saying we're equal, and at the foot of the cross we are equal. doesn't mean people don't have different ranks and responsibilities and authorities. It just means God looks at us and says, you're all human beings. Matter of fact, God looks at us and says, you are all sinful human beings going toward to hell without Jesus Christ. And when they stand before the white throne judgment, if they have not accepted Christ, they're going to stand at the white throne judgment and God's going to say, you're guilty whether they had no money or all the money in the world, whether they're white, black, purple, whatever color they might be, he's going to say, I don't care. Without Christ, you are guilty. These are the lessons we're going to learn as we go through this book. <laughs> and it's very important for us to really start seeing things the way God sees things. It is so easy for us to grab hold of the way the world says because we are bombarded by the world's way of thinking. We are bombarded with the jokes about, about wealth. We are bombarded about the jokes about ethnicity. We are bombarded by the racial jokes. And it is easy for them to get stuck in our head. And several of you have heard me even say a couple of times when you say, well, this, this, uh, I'm going to pick one that nobody uses, this, this Indian, uh, this uh, uh, Nepalese person did, and and I'll stop and go, what does their race have anything to do with your story? Okay, we have to get out of this idea of recognizing race and wealth or anything, because usually it has nothing to do with the way we relate to them. Because God says we are equal and we only have things because he says it. And we need to grab hold of God's way of thinking. Even as Christians, we can't be going just to other Christians. We have to reach out to the world. Now, should your best friends be non-Christians? Absolutely not. Okay, The people you hang out with the most should be other Christians. But you know, if we totally isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, How is the rest of the world going to come to Christ if we're not out there talking to them and teaching them and letting them know that they need Christ? But as I said, your best friend probably shouldn't be the Christian because your best friend is who do you go to for advice? And you go to a non-Christian for advice and you're going to get non-Christian advice. (laughs) 
you're going to get worldly advice. It's bad enough that we can get worldly advice from each other as Christians. But don't make your best friend somebody who's going to give you bad advice that's unchristian advice. And then we as ourselves need to watch what kind of advice am I giving? Am I giving advice that's centered in God's word? Or am I giving Christian advice? And it's very important for it to be God's way of thinking. All right, that's our introduction. Now we're going to look at this book. Philemon, chapter 1, which is the only chapter. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, to all and, and to our beloved Athela and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, and to the communication of your faith, that this communication of your faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by you, brother. All right, that is Saul's, uh, Paul's greeting to Philemon. Very similar to most of his greetings. First he says, it's Paul. <laughs> Now notice here, he doesn't say the Apostle Paul. Here he says the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I think this is interesting because he is a prisoner in Rome, but Paul's attitude toward it is, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner because God has made it so. He understood the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens to us without God's permission. Okay? I want to make that clear. Nothing happens to us without God's permission. And people go, well, you don't know. I did all these bad things. Nothing happens to us without God's permission. All right? Now, consequences will come, and God will let the consequences come into our life, but he is the one that allows things to come into our life. Now, we are in charge of how we react to it, what kind of attitude I have toward it, and the whole purpose of that test is, do I truly believe God? Do I trust God in whatever area that he's testing? Now, God already knows what we're going to do, and we are good at deceiving ourselves. God, I will never do such and such. And God will say, okay, let's see if that's a true statement. And he allows a test in there that is designed to make us fall without him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So that's the first thing. Everything that happens is common. But God will make a way of out. All right? It's common and God will make a way out. Now, a lot of people say because it says all temptation is, uh, for all temptation is common to man, but, but uh, God was, all right. Let's go read it. I've got this thing memorized, too, and I can't get it out of my mouth today. It's going to be one of those days. Let's read a verse I have memorized, and I'll know I'll... 
There hath no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. All temptation is common to men. So when Satan is lying to you, saying you're the only one that's ever had this happen to you, you're the only one that's been hit this hard, it's a lie. Also, we can, we can bear it. Because our next, our next idea is, God, I, can't, I, can't, I, just, I just can't stop myself from doing it. You've lied. And then he says, I will give you the power to get it out. All right? He will provide a way of escape. Now, having said that, every sin is designed to break me if I try to do it in my own strength. If I try to do it myself, the, the test is designed to make me fail. How do I get out of it? I turn to God. This is how we get out of every temptation that we have. If we turn to God, we will pass the test. If somehow we think we can do it in our own strength, we will fail the test. Because God is not going to let us come and say, God, look what I did. I, I passed this test, God. God is not going to let our flesh glory in him. He's going to say, no, I was the one that gave you the power to get through that. And we need to be able to understand that. And here Paul's saying, I'm not the prisoner of Rome. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He recognized that he was there for a reason. Now, how many of us would have that problem? We're arrested for being a Christian and we're getting ready to be, be uh, condemned. We would probably be moaning and groaning about being in prison. Not ready to say I'm a prisoner. How did Paul react? Well, we already know in other scriptures, he told one place that many of the servants of Caesar had come to Christ because I'm under arrest. He had two Roman guards chained to him 24 hours a day. Those poor Roman guards for four hours a day had to listen to everything Paul said. You know, could you imagine that? Paul's preaching, he's teaching, he's talking to people, he's writing, he's dictating letters. And these guys are hearing everything that he says all day long. And I am sure Paul didn't stop witnessing to them directly. <laughs> Why? Because he was in prison for Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm going to make sure Jesus is lifted up. At the prison, it's wonderful when I see guys that have come to Christ in prison. And it changes their whole attitude toward the prison. Are they happy to be in prison? No, they're not happy to be in prison. But they're saying, I have an opportunity to live for God and share Christ. What is our attitude when we're going through hard times? What is our attitude when everything seems to be going wrong? We have a choice. We can turn away, turn our back on God. We saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. We can turn around and say, God, I'm not following you anymore. It's too tough. Or we can say, God, I'm going to keep following you because I have no other answer. What is our answer during those hard times? It's not, a, and for if we're saved, it's not an issue of salvation. It's just an issue of victorious living by being crucified and walking in God or being defeated by falling for the sin. All a matter of our attitude. Am I going to believe God's word or am I going to believe the lies of Satan in my flesh? When I look around and say, well, this is terrible, it's awful. I love the book of Job where Job starts out on the right track. He says, God gave, God took away. And he was doing pretty good. His wife, even when his wife said, curse God, he goes, no, nope, we've got to take the good from the, and the bad. And then when his friends showed up <laughs> and started hammering him on Job, you must be an awful person. 
nothing like this bad ever happens to people unless they're awful. How, what have you done? And they kept hammering him and hammering him. And finally, Job started breaking down because of his friends not supporting him. Picture of what not to do as Christians with your fellow, fellow brothers and sisters that are going through a hard time. We're not to go, oh, you must be sinner. You must be really guilty. God would never let, no. We build up. We, edify. we might ask a question, are you sure that there's nothing in your life causing the, the, that deserves this? And then cause, help them with repenting. But you don't, after they say no, okay, let's encourage you. And sometimes our encouragement is no words at all. It may just be a hug. It may just be crying with them. It may just be giving them some scripture that, of encouragement, not trying to, to justify. Because you, if you want to drive yourself crazy in, in your lifetime, try to figure out why. Why is God doing everything he's doing? You will go crazy. It is easier just to say God is sovereign. He has a reason for what I'm going through. And then let him walk you through the storm. If you're going to sit there and try to figure out why, number one, we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't understand why certain things are going because we don't have the perspective. You're driving down a road, highway at full speed, and the bridge is out ahead of you, and it's not marked, and the police are trying to stop you, and you're going, why are you trying to stop me? I'm not speeding. I'm not doing anything wrong. If you keep going, you're going to drive off the edge of the bridge and, and, and not know why. God may know that there's a bridge out ahead of us. And he's saying, I don't want you to go this way. And we're going, God, I'm going this way no matter what. Been there, done that. I'm going this way no matter what. Fall off the bridge and have to suffer for a while. God knows what he's doing. And Paul is writing to Philemon and he says, you are a beloved and fellow laborer. Paul is really building up Philemon. Philemon, you've got a church in your house. You're, you're serving God. He goes, and to Aphia and Archibus, our fellow soldiers. So he includes a couple other people that are in that church. And then he gives us, and to the church in your house, going back to Philemon. Philemon had the church in his house. Now, we think, you know, it wasn't too big a deal. But, you know, we're told in the scriptures that the church meant daily. Now, I would love a church that meets daily. It's a lot of fun as far as I'm concerned. But unfortunately, we can't get people to come out daily in most cases. Uh, but, you know, God tells us that we are in, to be in fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia, gathering together with the same way of thinking. The church met daily. Why? Because we need encouragement daily. We really do. We need to be encouraged <laughs> daily because of the bombardment that the world gives us. And we think our world is so bad and so evil. We haven't got anything on the Roman Empire yet. We're getting there. We don't have anything on the Babylonian Empire at its end days or the Egyptian Empire at, the, at its end days. They had just as much pornography. They had just as much divorce. They had just as much homosexuality. Actually, they had more than we have. They had all these problems going on in their world that we're just now getting to. We are at the downward side. History tells us and we get to the place where we are coming into where homosexuality is, is accepted and fornication is accepted and adultery is accepted and all these other things and good is called, called evil and evil is called good. You're at the end of, the, end of your empire. We are coming on that very quickly. 
We also coming to the end of the world. If there's no place else for God to go, he says, okay, we're at the end times and the end is coming fast. How, are we there yet? I don't know. Are we almost at the end of the American reign of supremacy? Very clearly. If we do not have revival, this country is going down as every other country, uh, empire and country has in history. We may still be a country, but without the power that we're used to having. It's going to happen. Historically, it must happen because we're leaving God behind. And here he's saying, you've got your church in your home. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace. God's grace. Now we use that word, how often do we truly think about God's grace? God gives us so much more than what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve, thankfully. You know, I think it's amazing when I've heard Christians, or you know, usually non-Christians, all I want is what I deserve. You know, no, I really don't want what, what I deserve. Because if I get what I, go, what I deserve, I'd be going straight to hell. I would have nothing good in my life at all, because that's what I deserve, nothing good. And I'd spend eternity in hell. I am so thankful that God, number one, gives us heaven. And number two, blesses us while we're on this world. Not 100% of the time, not giving us everything we possibly would want, but he gives us blessing. And above all things, he gives us a peace that passes understanding, where we can have peace even in hard times. Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, is at peace because he knows he's where God wants him to be. And he's not fighting against God, which gives you great peace. When you're at peace, you walk through the storm that you're going through without even recognizing that it's a storm. You know, I love it when Peter, in the middle of that storm, when Jesus is walking on the water and he's called out, he starts walking on the water. He starts walking across the water. And what's it say? And when he saw the wind and the waves, he took his eyes off Jesus, saw the wind and the waves, and you know what was going through his mind. What am I doing out here in the storm? I shouldn't be out in the storm. By the way, what am I doing walking on the water? I can't walk on the water and immediately started sinking. He was smart enough to say, Lord, help me. <laughs> How many times have you been walking through a storm in life with your eyes on God, and all of a sudden you look at what's going on in your life and start going, oh, now I'm worried. You're almost through the storm sometimes, and now you're worried because you take your eyes off God. Keep our eyes focused on God is very important for us. Then Paul in verse 4 says, I thank God making mention of you always in my prayers. Something that Philemon had done had made an impact on Paul that he remembered him. He prayed for him. I don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us. <laughs> but something made him remember Philemon. I, I almost wonder, when I read through the Bible and on Paul's letters, how long was Paul's prayer list that he had? You know, because he, he told a lot of people that he was praying for them. A lot of places, a lot of people that he was praying for him. He had to have had one very large prayer list to pray for. And he's telling Philemon, I remember you. I pray for you. And then he goes, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward the saints. Your love. One of the things that sets Christians apart from the rest of the world is our love one for another. 
And this word is agape love, and we've talked about this. Agape is unconditional love, which I prefer to say objective love. It is true no matter what happens. Human love is most of the time subjective. I love you as long as you haven't done anything to make me mad at you. And as soon as you make me mad at you, I don't love you anymore. That is not God's love. And that's not the love he expects from us. The love he expects from us is his love, unconditional. I don't care what anybody does. I'm still wanting to love them if I'm loving them the way God says to love them. Now, does that mean I'm going to hang out with them all the time and really enjoy being in their presence? Not necessarily. <laughs> but if I have true love for somebody, I'm not talking about all the bad things they've done. I'm not talking about how they maybe even have hurt me or anybody else. I'm loving them. Now, if I'm talking to them, I may go, you know, you need to help correct this. This is, this is hurting people as long as I'm talking to them. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, well, I'm just going to tell other people about how bad they are. Nope, that's gossip. It's gossip even if it's true. All right? I hope you caught that. It's gossip even if you're saying something that you know is true. It is still gossip. Because you're making other people dislike that person who may or may not know anything about them. How many of you have somebody that you don't like and you've never met because your best friend has told you all about how bad and awful they are? You've never met the person and you don't like them because of all the stuff that that person has said about them. We need to be very careful about that. Because number one, it's usually colored by our bad feelings about them, and they're not usually as bad as the person's making them out to be. And if you got to know them without knowing who they were, you'd probably be friends with them and then realize that that's who that person's been talking about. <laughs> you know, we need to be careful. We need to build each other up, edify one another. You know. Uh, the old adage that we've all heard or been taught, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all, we need to apply that in our Christian walk. Speak good about people. Speak kind things about people. You know, and we as Christians, we have a great way of gossip. You really need to pray for brother so-and-so. You know, they've been really having a problem with uh, you know, pornography and, uh, and adultery, so you really need to pray for that brother. And we don't tell them, which, you know, we tell them what brother they're to pray for. You know, so we get to gossip all in the name of giving a prayer request. You really need to pray for sister so-and-so. You know, she's, she, she's doing such and such. You know, asking for prayer is great. But you know, we don't need to tell the bad things that people need prayer for. We just need to say they really need prayer. Because I can tell you one thing. Every one of us needs prayer. Every one of us needs prayer. We don't have, need to have people tell us, telling, you know, this is all, this is all the bad things that that they need prayer for. So he's saying, your love for others is going out. And it says that the communication of your faith may become effectual. This is really interesting, that the communication, the way that you speak, will become powerful. Do you want to be known as a powerful Christian? Start loving other people. Start caring about other people. Can we meet all the needs of every single person out there? Absolutely not. None, none of us are that rich. But we can care enough to do whatever we can. And it may be as simple as all that we can do is pray. We may be able to help us, like in our church, we have the food bank. that We help people as much as we can. You know, when people call and say, I need money for this, that, and the other thing, well, we don't have a whole lot of money to give to people. 
And I'm not just going to give it to anybody who calls up the church. I'm going to look at people in our church that need help. We'll help out as much as we can, and that's not a whole lot. But we'll help out as best we can for in our church to reach out to people because we want to care. We give the food to just anybody that we can help out with as long as the food will last. <laughs> but we're not going to just go, here, everybody, come out, come here and get food because we don't have that much food. You know, if we did that, we'd end up having about 200 people. I think that's how many cans are back there, about 200 cans. <laughs> One can a person, <laughs> which isn't going to help much. But he's saying to Philemon, your love, your faith is coming out and you have acknowledged a very good thing which is in you. He said, people are seeing it. What is the things that people say about you as a Christian? Will they describe you as somebody that loves others, cares for others? Or, as the case of many Christians, they're just judgmental, they're irritating to be around, they, they don't like anything. You know, and that is unfortunately the testimony that a lot of Christians have in their life. They're just so judgmental. They don't love anything. They don't care for anything. In uh, God's Not Dead 3, or God, God's Not Dead Light in the Darkness, they don't like the word term 3, <laughs> the one girl came to the pastor and he says, you know why nobody comes to church? He goes, and he goes, no. And she goes, we know why, what the church is against, but we don't know what the church is for. We need to be very careful that the church doesn't see us as somebody who's against everything but we are for the gospel of Christ going out. That does not mean we're going to say that sin is okay. The world needs to know that the church says, because God says sin is sin. But they also need to know that God has provided a way of escape through Jesus Christ to enter heaven. Our job as Christians is to give that testimony. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, the wages of sin is death, which means hell. But Jesus paid the price for us to go to heaven. And then we realize that none of us is good enough to go to heaven. None of us, including me. I'm not good enough to go to heaven. Anybody who knows me knows that. I am not good enough to go to heaven. I need Jesus Christ. Everybody in this room, none of us is good enough to go to heaven. Nobody listening on the internet is good enough to go to heaven. Without Jesus Christ, we will not go to heaven because he died for our sins. And we need to go to him and say, God, I repent for my sins. I ask for forgiveness. Come and dwell in me and be my Lord, which means I agree to do what he says. Now, I'm not going to do it perfectly, <laughs> but when he says something, I'm going to go, God, help me obey it to the best of my ability. Very important feature that we have. He is Lord. And I heard a couple weeks ago, one of the pastors on the radio was saying, he is Lord even if we don't recognize him as Lord. God does not need us to admit that he's Lord. He knows he's Lord. We are just in disobedience when we don't see him as Lord. When the world does not see him as Lord, they're in disobedience. And they will be judged for that disobedience. So we need to be able to come to this and follow through with this. And the last thing he says in this place, for we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by you. When they showed up at Philemon's place, he took care of them. He showed them love. He showed them compassion. Probably gave them a meal, you know, maybe even a place to, to put sleep that night. But they were refreshed. They were not condemned. 
The whole purpose of coming into our Koinonia fellowships is that we will be refreshed. When we come to a Bible study or a church service and we leave, we should feel completely refreshed. We have been in the presence of God and be consoled. Hopefully that's the way everybody feels when they come to church. I love coming to God's church. No matter where it is, I have always loved coming to church and being with God's people. Does that mean every single person in the church is a good person to be around? Nope. Some of the, some of the people in the church are very hard to get along with. They're, they're the family member that nobody wants to come to the family get-together. <laughs> but you know they're invited because they're family. And you're hoping that one day their life will change. One day they'll hear the message that, ought to, that ought, turns their heart to God. And the love of God comes through them. I want everybody to come to church. I really do. I don't care who they are or how hard they are to get along with or anything or what they're even doing with their life. I want them so they can hear the word of God and hear the gospel message. And maybe they will turn their heart to God. Because if they're not here, maybe God's going to still send a Christian to them eventually to talk to them. But you know, I don't know how many of you got uh, saved by going out to the street and having somebody come out to the street. And I know there are a lot of people doing that. I've done street evangelism. I've led people to the Lord out on the street. I've led people to the Lord in, in, at work. But you know, most of the people that I've led to the Lord have actually been in my Sunday school class or my in, a, in a church, probably more than anywhere else. I'm going to say, we as people need to go out and talk to people. We need to lift Jesus up. Lift the crucified Jesus up and the love that he has for people so that they will respond and then help plant them in a church. Now, I'd love them to come here, but I mean, we're not the only church out there. So if they, if they, hear, if they get saved, they can go to any church that preaches the word of God. And thank you, God. I know that they come here, they're going to hear the word of God. But, you know, our job is not to say you're going to get there. Our job is to bring them to the throne of God and let God grow them. And we do have responsibility. Paul had a responsibility. This is why he wrote all these letters to the churches. I'm writing you these letters to tell you what you're doing wrong and help you, help you do what's right. We need to be able to show that love to other people. Build up people. Help them see what they need to see. Be known for our love. Be known for our care. And know that people can talk to us and not be condemned. And criticized. God says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. No condemnation. We can't be condemning ourselves and we cannot be condemning other people. It is so easy to look at people and say, well, I don't even know if they're a Christian. Look at the way they're living. It's none of my business. My job is just to love and show God's love to them. It's between God and them on whether they're saved or not. And the last thing I'm going to say is one of the scariest verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, I do depart from me, I did not know you. I do not know you. And when you read before that, these were people who had gone to church, studied the Bible, cast out demons, fed the poor, went, you know, visited people in the prisons, did all the things that we're supposed to do as a Christian. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. We must know in our heart that there's a point in time that I have said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my life and save me. 
in your own words. doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be those exact words, but you need to know that God is now in your life and be able to point to the time when that happened. In our world in America, we are still generally a Christian world country, and people still think that they're a Christian just because they went to church. There are people who go to church all their life and think, I'm a Christian because I've gone to church all my life. There must be a point in time where you have actually committed yourself to Christ. And when you do that, your life changes. God will change you. Because he comes in and he makes us a new creation. Brand new creation. He says, you're no longer the person you are. And then we are not at home in the world. That's when we start having trouble doing the things that would be sinful and saying, I shouldn't be doing this. We catch ourselves watching something on the television that we never always watch and say, this is terrible. This isn't godly. And stop watching it. We stop doing so much of what we're doing because God starts saying, no, you are a new creation that does not enjoy these things. Bad news is it never stops. <laughs> the more you clean out of your life, the more God shows you because Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And every time God removes one thing out of our life, he starts to show us something else in our life and says, uh, there's a little more down there. You move that rock. Look at all those bugs moving around. All right, you got rid of all those bugs. Let me, let's dig in. Oh, there's more down there. And, and he keeps doing this over and over in our life. Why? Because he wants to perfect us in this lifetime. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. Lord, if there's anybody who doesn't know you, we ask that today they will invite you into their heart and make you Lord and Savior. Recognize their sin and ask you to be their Savior and that they will share that with another Christian and start following you in a stronger way. Lord, for those of us that are saved, we pray that you will build your love in us so much that people will say, may not agree with them, but I love who they are and how kind they are and how much they love. And we just thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.